Support for this podcast comes from you. And Biogen, committed to transforming the treatment of neurological disease. Biogen is working to develop life-changing therapies for people with multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, ALS, and spinal muscular atrophy. Biogen.com slash science. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. The gap between the rich and the poor in America, both the gap in money and the gap in opportunity, has become such a concern in recent years, it's now strangely a kind of pet cause for billionaires. And they want to show us they care. We don't need to have the extremes of inequality that we have. And I think that a country with $50,000 of GDP per capita should have a, a greater, the people at the bottom end should be doing better. That's the billionaire investor Warren Buffett, called the Oracle of Omaha. And he's arguing all the way back in 2013 that the government needs to do more to help. That same year, a New York billionaire argued that indeed the poor were getting shafted. And even as a rich guy, he got that. We're losing our jobs to other countries. We have countries that manipulate their currencies so incredibly well, so much better than we could ever do, and they take our jobs. And my base and the people that like me best, frankly, are poor people and working people, working class people, and I'm very proud of that. I think the people that like me the least are the rich people. That, of course, was our current president, long before he was a contender for the office. This hour, we're going to talk to experts from different fields about where this gap between the well-off and the struggling is really headed, as well as some of the data behind the gap that often doesn't get talked about. In a few minutes, we're going to talk to Alan Baruby, who studies the geography of inequality. But our first data reality check comes from Alexandra Killewald, a professor of sociology at Harvard. She says, we've taken our eyes off the ball. Income inequality actually pales in comparison to another sort of inequality, wealth inequality. It's not what you earn, it's what you have. And if that sounds kind of like splitting hairs, Kilowald says it's not. People can use their wealth to buffer shocks that they experience. So people who find themselves suddenly without a job can draw on their wealth. You also use the things that you buy with your wealth. So your house or your car are some of the key assets that many Americans hold. And then also, of course, wealth is often used to pay for things like retirement and for children's higher education. So the money we have not only changes our lives, but the lives of the people around us, which raises the question, is your money, is your success, your education, is that all baked into the cake? Like you thought you were in charge, but really you were just riding a wave. We all like to think that we control our own lives, but the reality is that the circumstances of your birth, whether it's the race of your parents or it's the economic position of your parents, turns out to matter a lot for the wealth that you achieve. So as a general pattern, if your parents are 10 percentage points higher in the wealth distribution, so going from being right at the average at the 50th percentile up to the 60th percentile, that tends to move you up about four percentage points in the distribution. So it's a pretty strong relationship between your parents' wealth and the wealth you achieve. Now, is that because people are leaving their kids tons of money in their wills? Is that because they're setting them up with really great jobs where they make a ton of money? Like, Why is it that rich people have rich children? It's definitely, to some extent, the passing of money directly across generations. But interestingly, the biggest explanatory role goes to education. So wealthy parents tend to have children who get a four-year college degree. And that could be for any number of reasons. It could be because of providing 
access to higher education through supporting, you know, paying college tuition directly, or it could be something that happens even earlier on by wealthy parents living in neighborhoods with good schools. Schools are a public good that wealthy parents can try to sort of appropriate to themselves the, the benefits of high-quality schools. And give me a sense also, is this true across genders and races, that if you're born to poor parents tend to be poor as you get older, and same on the other side, if you're born rich, that tends to continue on? The pattern is actually pretty different for African Americans. So for whites in general, the wealthier your parents are, the wealthier you are. For African Americans, race has this extra really important role, which is it's still true that the wealthier your parents, the wealthier you are, but the payoffs are just much smaller. So even if you took a white and a black adult who had parents with the same amount of wealth, the white offspring is expected to have higher wealth than the African-American offspring. So at every point of the parental wealth distribution, African-Americans are disadvantaged. And we often refer to that as higher rates of downward mobility across generations for African-Americans. So to go back to something that you said before about higher education, so if you've got poor parents and they sacrifice everything, you know, whatever they can to get their kid a college education, is that the single best thing that they could do? I think that's right. There's a broader finding in the social science literature that conditional on getting that four-year college degree, the gaps in economic outcomes by where you came from are smaller. So among folks who have that four-year degree, it doesn't matter so much whether your parents were rich or poor. So of course, you have a much better chance of getting the college degree if your parents were rich. But once you cross that hurdle, the gaps are smaller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Alexander Kilowald about wealth inequality, which is one of the aspects of inequality that doesn't get a lot of attention when we talk about income inequality. And I want to bring into this discussion Alan Berube of the Brookings Institution, who studies geography and inequality. And Alan, in 2016, you ranked cities in terms of inequality. The top five were Boston, New Orleans, Atlanta, Cincinnati, and Providence, Rhode Island. So that means that the people in the top 5% of households were making between 15 and 18 times as much as people in the bottom 20% of households. But you also looked at metropolitan areas, so not just cities, but the whole surrounding area. And there, New York City and the San Francisco Bay Area were right there on top. So what's going on with cities in terms of inequality as far as you can see? So I think the the principal issue that uh, these cities are facing is that they have increasingly a smaller and smaller share of their tax base on which they rely to fund an increasing proportion of critical public services, safety schools, transportation. And meanwhile, while this is all happening in cities, what is happening in suburbs as it relates to poverty? Tell me what you found. Sure. I mean, I think a lot of the dynamics that we're talking about with inequality in cities are, are not at all limited to the to the cities themselves, right? They're a function of the economic structure and the evolution of the wider regions within within which those cities sit. So poverty has shifted from cities to suburbs over a you know, three or four decade span, such that actually there are more poor people living in the suburbs of major metropolitan areas today than in their big cities. And you can see that in the data that essentially the suburbs have gotten poorer over time. Yeah, the, the, the rate of poverty, that is the share of the population that lives below 
the federal poverty threshold um, is still quite a bit higher in cities than it is in suburban areas. It's it's almost twice as high in cities. Hmm. But in terms of where most poor people live, uh, the suburbs have grown a lot faster than cities have. And part of that growth has been in low-income families, low-income households, low-income workers. Um, so actually about 58% of poor people who live in major metropolitan areas today live outside the big cities. So I wonder, and I, I wonder this from both of you, but Alexander, we can start with you. Are there ways to try to, you know, as we have this situation where there's this, there's a very huge gap um, in wealth between the top and the bottom, are there ways to change that? Because of the role of education in passing wealth across generations, I think that access to high quality schools and in general weakening the association between the economic circumstances of your parents and the education that you end up achieving would be a really productive way to reduce the gap in wealth. Another thing in terms of the gap by race lines is certainly more active enforcement of anti-discrimination policies. We know that housing markets, both real estate markets in terms of what kinds of homes buyers of different races get shown, as well as discrimination in mortgage terms or even the terms of vehicle loans. All these things contribute to disadvantaging African Americans and just more active enforcement of anti-discrimination policy could be helpful. And Alan, what do you see remedies here, policy prescriptions here that either, you know, that cities could take advantage of, that that states could, uh, that the, the, the federal government could? Yeah, um, sure. sure. And, that, and that's certainly something that we're tracking and, and thinking about, I guess it, the, the frame matters. And I think to the extent that mayors try to set themselves up as uh, tackling or erasing inequality, that might be a losing battle because so much of what inequality is about is, is increasingly about is what's going on at the top and is a function of a global economy and superstar employees that can command very, very high salaries and then sort of choose whatever city they want to locate in to, to get those salaries. What I think matters more for local and regional and, and state policymakers and maybe what they ought to be training their firepower at is mobility, right? It's how do we make sure that sort of where, where you're born into, the family that you're born into, doesn't sort of consign you to a life that's inextricably linked to that income. So I think part of it is just dealing with the framework, especially when you're a local policymaker and you just can't tax the rich into oblivion because they'll just move somewhere else, right? So thinking not only about inequality as the target, but actually thinking about how do I promote economic mobility and economic diversity in my city. I think that's what we're looking at, and that's what we're, we're trying to get cities to think about. Something I've been struck by as we were talking that seems to kind of bridge these two different uh, areas of research is the role of housing. I think both in the rental market and in real estate, that's an important aspect of both the causes of growing inequality and the consequences. So the effort to find affordable housing is some of the consequences, the real consequences for people's uh, well-being if they have safe and affordable housing. And then on the wealth side also, homes are the single largest asset for most middle-class Americans. It's the largest part of their wealth portfolio. And owning a home has a lot of implications financially for folks through the appreciation of the home, through the tax breaks. And also, your mortgage payment acts as kind of a commitment device to savings. So I think that's one way that we kind of bring together here the suburbanization aspect as well as the wealth accumulation. 
And yeah, and I would add, there is a term that we call the segregation tax, which reflects the fact that, you know, in our metropolitan areas, many of which are still very highly segregated by race and by income, a black homeowner, I'm going to, I'm not sure I'm going to get the the numbers exactly right, but, uh, you know, black homeowner with an income of $100,000 lives in you know, on average in the same kind of neighborhood as a white homeowner with an income of about $30,000. Whoa, that is a huge difference. I thought you were going to say (laughs) $80,000 or something. Yeah, yeah. So they're not getting access to the same quality communities, probably in terms of the schools that they have access to, in terms of the jobs that they have access to. But the value of the asset that they have acquired is not going to appreciate the same rate as the asset for a white homeowner with a hundred thousand dollar income, right? Because the just the the amenities, right? The desirability right. of that location not as strong, and so it's not going to be as valuable an asset for themselves and, and for their children going forward. So, actually, one more thing: uh, we talked about how do you solve this, but where do you actually see these trend lines going? So, not how would you want them to go, but where are they going? I guess I'm not. I'm not terribly hopeful that the the market economy is going to sort of self-correct in ways that alleviate some of the challenges that we're seeing today. I think if you want to mitigate some of the issues that inequality creates, public actors and public institutions are just going to have to do more. That doesn't only mean to, you know, more taxes and more redistribution. Uh, I think it means thinking about some of the public investments we were talking about, thinking about what we ask corporations to do in terms of paying certain wage levels, investing in their workers in different ways, enabling their workers to share in profits in different ways. Again, I'm, I'm a little pessimistic about the future of pre-tax, pre-public sector inequality, but I think the fact that there are more folks talking about it, more folks interested in what the collective can do about it does give me some grounds for optimism. And Alexander, you think so much about wealth and like how much we have in our bank account and how much is sitting there, you know, in our house, uh, the kind of how much our house is worth. What do you see happening as we go forward? What does the trajectory seem like to you? Sadly, I agree completely with Alan. Uh, I think that the market forces are in the direction of tending to increase inequality. I think also that significant macroeconomic shocks can have real implications. So the Great Recession was a time when the black, white, and and white Hispanic wealth gaps hit their highest um, level in several decades because the recession hit minority households particularly hard. So I think that to some extent, those kinds of shocks have the power to make inequality trends even worse. So like Alan, I think that the chances for inequality to be reduced in pre-tax, pre-transfer trends is not great and that uh, redistributive efforts are necessary in order to reverse these kinds of trends. Alexander Kilowald is a professor of sociology at Harvard and Alan Bruby is a senior fellow and deputy director at the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program. He's also a co-author of Confronting Suburban Poverty in America. Thanks so much to both of you. Thanks, Kara. Thank you. Thank you. 
On our Facebook page, we've got more about wealth inequality versus income inequality, and the differences are striking. That's at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Hey, it's Kara again. So here's something that's probably not going to be that surprising to you. I love radio and I love podcasts. And if you're listening right now, that may also be true of you. So what we're going to try to do is share the love. Think of someone who's special to you and then send them your favorite podcast. This is actually a big month-long effort with a lot of podcasts working together. And you can tell us what you're recommending to the people you really like by using the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thanks so much. On with the show. Walter Scheidel is a historian. He's got a new book out. Its copyright is 2017. But by the time we got our copy, which was just a few weeks ago, the first line was already out of date. It said that the richest 62 people in the world have the same wealth as the bottom half of the world. That's 3.5 billion people. Now, those numbers are wrong. The richest eight, eight people in the world now own as much as the bottom 3.5 billion. Numbers that big make no sense to me, so I did a few calculations and I took a page from the math professor Stephen Strogatz, who taught me this technique. If you want to compare eight to 3.5 billion, think of them both as seconds, like seconds in time. Eight seconds goes by in, well, eight seconds. And how long does it take 3.5 billion seconds to go by? More than 112 years. On this week's show, we're talking about inequality, and maybe not in ways that you usually hear it discussed. Walter Scheidel, who's a professor at Stanford, argues that fixing this incredible inequality with tax policy or better education or whatever is probably not going to work, at least if history is any guide. It's going to take something a lot uglier. He's the author of The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality. Walter, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. So this trend of uh, the rich getting richer apparently seems to just be galloping forward. When you look at the broad sweep of history, is this normal? I've looked at the very broad sweep of history over literally hundreds and thousands of years. Mm. And if you look at it on that scale, you see a very clear pattern, which is for most of the time, inequality was either rising or remained stable at more or less high levels. And what it took to bring it down was uh, a series of very violent dislocations, of violent shocks that would really narrow the gap between rich and poor. Those, those shocks used to come in four flavors. I call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, an analogy <laughs> to the four horsemen in, in Revelation of John, not entirely without tongue-in-cheek, but it's actually quite similar because they tended to be pretty terrible events. Uh, there are mass mobilization warfare, if you think of World War I, World War II, transformative revolutions like what happened in Russia or in China in the first half of the 20th century under Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. It's the collapse of states, which is primarily a phenomenon of, of pre-modern history, and very, very severe epidemics that carry off a large chunk of the population but leave the survivors better off than before. Can you give me an example of a couple of interesting 
shocks. I mean, maybe not interesting in a good way, but uh, shocks that might deserve sort of focusing on for a minute to explain why they they change the inequality situation. Right. If you take uh, the United States during World War II, for instance, which is a perfect example, inequality was extremely high in the 1920s. It went down just a little bit during the Depression. But then when the war started, a whole number of things happened all at once. There was mass mobilization. Millions and millions of people were drafted into the military. Uh, tax rates went through the roof. Uh, the top tax in- income tax rate was over 90% for the highest incomes. There was massive government intervention in the economy. Capital was generally devalued. There was a lot of redistribution to workers. The rate of unionization went up very dramatically in this period. All kinds of things came together. In other countries, it was physical destruction of capital as well. And so by the time the dust settled in 1945, we can see in the data uh, inequality in terms of income and wages in particular had gone down very considerably. But that was only step one. Step two was that there are aftershocks. There are the effects of these dislocations linger on, in this case, for several more decades. Because once you have those tax and other policies in place, once you have strong unions, this is going to have an equalizing effect, at least in the medium term. So for about a generation in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, most people in the U.S. benefited from uh, these shocks and the policies they had put in place. And it took quite a long time for this effect to wear off. It's not really till the 70s or 80s till we see a reversal in this trend, not just in the U.S., but in many other Western countries as well. I I was going to ask you about that because I think people do look back at the 50s, 60s, and 70s and think, man, like those were the days. I mean, not everybody thinks this, but, you know, some people think those were days when it was much easier to get a job if you maybe just had a high school education, but like not just a job, a good job where you felt secure and you if you had a couple kids, you could, you know, send them to school and you could get a, a decent house. And 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 what's happened? Like what is where are those jobs that that used to exist? But it sounds like what you're saying is, whoa, 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 that, that, was not, that wasn't a normal time. That was a weird time. And getting back to it is going to be really hard. That is absolutely true. The French call it the lucky 30 years after the war, where you have very strong economic growth, a great expansion of the middle class, coupled with declining inequality, which is not something you ordinarily see in history. These are very, very special circumstances that obtained after the Depression, after World War II, and they really benefited this one generation. And then, needless to say, this situation became the reference point for us later today, and now people are looking back, saying exactly what you said, right? Why aren't things anymore the way they used to be? You've talked about a few reasons that money can get redistributed, a few ways and sort of shocks that can allow that to happen. Now, obviously, a pandemic is a pandemic and is presumably not created by inequality. And war is often not created by inequality, although it sometimes is. Give me an example or a couple of examples of situations in history where inequality itself led to the violence that would then correct the inequality. That is a very common question that I often get because my thesis is that certain types of violence mitigate inequality. And so the question is, does it work the other way around? The short answer is there doesn't seem to be a systematic pattern in a way. You mean that like if things are very unequal, people are driven to, you know, cut the rich down to size kind of thing. That is exactly true because there are plenty of examples both in history and in contemporary societies where societies are highly unequal and outcomes are very different. So, for instance, if you think of Latin America 
uh, today or in the last few decades, levels of inequality have been high, extremely high, even by U.S. standards, for a very long time. There are very, very few violent um, outbreaks or revolutions. Cuba, Nicaragua, uh, you name it. They're far in between, and there are a number of reasons for that, because the U.S. was trying to contain this. But by and large, there is no uniform outcome. If you go back 200 years in history, look at the French Revolution, right? You think of Louis right. XVI and Versailles and right. Marie Antoinette and all the rest of it. There's extraordinary inequality in France. And so you could say, well, of course they would have a revolution. But there are many other countries in Europe at the same time, England, Spain, the Netherlands, Italy, they're just as unequal and there is no revolution. At the same time, the British colonies in North America at the time were far less unequal than European countries, and yet there's the War of Independence. So that doesn't seem to be a meaningful systematic relationship between high inequality on the one hand and some kind of war or revolution on the other. I should add, though, this hasn't really been properly systematically studied. So there's still a lot of work to be done by historians and by social scientists. So basically, inequality could last in a society for a long time without anybody being driven to, you know, execute the czar or have a communist revolution or whatever. That seems to be the case. In fact, if you look at the big communist revolutions, neither Russia nor China were particularly unequal by mm. global standards at the time mm. when those revolutions occurred, which is not what Marx would have expected. Mm. So if violence doesn't occur, a society is really unequal, there's no violence to sort of correct or change that. What happens? Does it keep getting more and more unequal or does it kind of like stabilize in its unequalness and it just sort of presses on? If you look, say, at the 19th century in Europe, which is a period of extensive stability, what happens is basically what it just described. There is a mild, gradual increase in inequality, but effectively at some point you reach a plateau where inequality can't really rise any further. And the same has been observed in many Latin American countries like Brazil, for instance. So there is certainly potential, if you just look at history, there's clear potential for very high levels of inequality to be maintained for generations or if if you go farther back in the past for hundreds of years. Now, that doesn't mean that's still the same today because a whole lot has changed in the 20th century. It may well be that in a modern economy under social democracy, the various variables that feed into it have changed. But as far as history can tell us anything, it shows that high inequality is certainly sustainable in the long run. If you got to run the world for a little while, <laughs> is there anything you think you could do to lessen inequality? Or do you think, you know what, it's not as big a deal as people think it is? Like, there's a lot of concern and hand-wringing about it, but may maybe it, it, it isn't as much of a detriment to our lives as we worry that it is. I think most people agree that it is really poverty that's the most critical issue. Okay, so we're not, we shouldn't be worried that, you know, a rich person has a lot of money. We should be worried that a poor person doesn't have anything. Well, we should probably be worried about uh, very stark inequalities, uh. but we should be worried even more about poverty, right? Okay. If people are deprived of very basic means of living, that is really very dire and critical. And here the trend's actually quite positive, not necessarily just in the U.S., but worldwide. So if you take China, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of dire poverty, and at the same time, inequality has doubled. Now, if you were to ask the people who have been lifted out of poverty, what would you rather have? Well, they would probably 
rather not be poor anymore than have more equality. There was great equality under Mao when everybody was equally poor, right, right, but that's not right. a very desirable state of affairs either. At the same time, it's not just about money, right? There are ethical issues, moral issues, issues of basic fairness. You can ask, is it feasible in an ostensibly democratic society to have these very stark inequalities? That's certainly something to be taken seriously, but it's probably not as pressing a concern as poverty as such. To go back to your theory of like that, that violence helps to create, a, in some ways, a more equal playing field, what aspect of violence, or we could expand it to, you know, plagues, these really just terrible things that happen, wars and, and, and sicknesses, what, what is it about those things that makes a society more equal? Well, they tend to work in different ways. So I already talked about the world wars where you have fiscal measures, redistribution, any number of things. In a revolution, in a communist revolution, it's pretty straightforward, right? The revolutionaries go out, they expropriate, often kill the rich, they redistribute property, they collectivize uh, property, land, industry, and so on. They plan the economy, they set wages and prices. You asked me before if I was the rule of the world. Well, if I was some kind of super Stalin, that would ensure worldwide equality. It would be a very undesirable outcome, but that's the way it could be done. Right. State collapse uh, used to work because the rich are closely affiliated with uh, the people in charge of the state. Well, it hasn't really changed all that much, as we can tell, in the U.S. today, but it was even more so in the past. And so when a state goes down, everybody suffers, but the rich suffer more proportionately because they simply have more to lose. And so for purely statistical reasons, there is an equalizing effect. Right. The, uh, the plagues, well, this is something that happened mostly in agrarian societies where if you kill off, let's say, a third of the workforce, but the physical infrastructure remains unharmed, that is going to increase the price of labor, wages, right. and it's going to make things like land and capital less valuable. And so for that reason alone, the gap between rich and poor is going to narrow quite a bit. That wouldn't really necessarily happen in the world today. It might not work the same way in an industrial economy. But that makes sense. I think of like the bubonic plague. And that's correct. If, yeah. if everybody needs to eat, and that's, that's a constant, um, and all of a sudden there are a lot fewer farmers out there, it becomes very valuable to be a farmer. That's exactly true. And you can see in those cases where the rich and powerful try to stem the tide and force people to work for lower ma wages. But eventually, it's such a pervasive upheaval right. that uh, market forces eventually assert themselves and people have to be better paid. But then, of course, over time, the population grows back. Eventually, there are as many people as there were before and wages go down to where they used to be and the value of capital goes up again. What do you say to critics who say there's got to be another way to correct tremendous inequality, some policy prescription besides, you know, having a society collapse or having, right, having a communist revolution or having a bunch of people killed off by the plague? Do you think there's no other lever of uh, changing things? I say to the critics, I hope you're right. Right? That's my most <laughs> profound hope. All I can do That'd as a historian, nice, right? <laughs> all I can do as a historian is to lay out this is what history shows us. History does not, strictly speaking, predict the future. Change is absolutely possible and desirable in this particular case. What history does show, however, and here I would stick to my guns, is it gives us a sense of which things are difficult or easy to accomplish. And here the lesson is very clear. It is extremely, maybe not impossible, but very, very 
difficult to reduce inequality in a peaceful way. That much is clear. And that should really enter our thinking into what kind of policies to push for and how to implement them. It's not as easy as some people sometimes make it out to be, saying, mm. well, if only we elected the right uh, government, if only we did this, if only we did that, that. It seems to be uh, much more difficult than many policy advocates seem to appreciate. Walter Scheidel is a professor at Stanford. He's the author of The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Walter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. One other interesting tidbit from Walter Scheidel. He says that societies that are more equal than America, so think about Scandinavian countries, for example, are not necessarily places with less income inequality. They actually haven't been able to make much headway on that. They're places with a lot more will to redistribute. We're going to have more about the history of inequality and how it has affected different nations on our website, innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Destination Medical Center, a strategic economic initiative in Rochester, Minnesota, to build global destinations for life science, medicine, and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. Amid all the talk about healthcare and what's going to happen to it, there's one question that doesn't get discussed nearly enough. Why is healthcare so expensive? So there's obviously lots of reasons. You've got an aging population, you've got high salaries amongst healthcare executives. But is one of those reasons innovation itself? Are we looking at an industry in which there's great new tests and amazing pills and cutting edge surgeries, but it all adds up to a bill that we can't really afford to pay? John Gruber has been working on the economics of healthcare for about 30 years. He helped Mitt Romney expand healthcare in Massachusetts, which became known as Romney Care. And he helped President Obama expand healthcare in the US, which of course became known as Obamacare. He's a professor of economics at MIT. John, thanks for coming into the studio. Good to be here as always. So if we pull away from politics for a second and kind of the plans of the moment, um, explain why you think that healthcare costs are on the rise in general, and that's true in pretty much every country and not just in the U.S. That is true. Healthcare costs always rise everywhere. Hmm. It is true over the last 30 years they've risen faster in the U.S. than most other developed countries, but they always rise. And basically, it's partly what you said. It's, it's innovation. The problem is it's helpful innovation and less helpful innovation. Hmm. So let's take a simple example. Let's take two drugs, Savaldi. Uh, drug for hepatitis C, and prostate cancer drugs, okay? Savaldi is a miracle. Savaldi, which costs $84,000, saves a life. Wow. Saves a life. Hmm. Someone with hepatitis C would have died, and now they live. Mm -hmm. For $84,000, that's a bargain. Mm -hmm. Some of these prostate drugs cost thirty dollars to $50,000 and extend your life maybe a day or a week. Hmm. That's a waste. Now, innovation, they're both new innovation. They're both new drugs. The question is, how do we as a society figure out to be able to get the innovative drugs that are cost effective, but maybe avoid the innovative drugs that aren't? You said a few things there that I want to get to. But one thing that was kind of a, uh, a scary statement, which is healthcare costs rise everywhere. Always. Always. Now, taking that to its logical conclusion, 
what? We're going to be spending 100 cents on every dollar eventually ah, on health care? Ah, okay, this is very important. Okay. I said rise. You jumped to said rise faster than the economy. I see. Okay. So, so the qu- they always rise. The question is how much faster than the economy do they mm. rise? So, for instance, the U.S. spends 17.5% of our GDP on health care. If we kept that fixed, we would have no long-run fiscal problem in the U.S. We'd be golden. Okay. Has that gone up over time? That's gone up enormously over okay, time. Okay. It's gone up from about 4% of GDP in 1950 Whoa. to 17.5% today. Okay. Now, two facts about that, which seem contradictory but important to both keep in mind. If you look at the increase from 4% in 1950 to 17.5% today, it's been worth it. What do I mean by that? I mean health care sucked in 1950, and it is so much better today that it's worth it. In 1950... A baby born was four times as likely to die before they reached their first birthday. In 1950, if you had a heart attack, you were four times as likely to die within the first year. Or to put it for your young, healthy listeners in their terms, in 1950, if you hurt your knee skiing, okay, you were in the hospital for a week, you're on crutches for six weeks, you had arthritis the rest of your life. Now you hurt your knee skiing, you get scoped, you're home the next day, you're, you're skiing the next week. Okay, healthcare is way better today. And in fact, we are better off as a country spending 17.5% of GDP and getting the health outcomes we do than we were spending 4% and getting the health outcomes we did then. That's fact one. Fact two is we waste about a third of what we spend on health care. That about a third of what we spend on health care does nothing to improve our health. Now, you might say, how can those two facts be consistent? They're consistent because the other two-thirds has been awesome. So that basically we've got this very productive two-thirds, which is carried along this wasteful one-third, so that on average it's been worth it. But along the way, we've wasted a huge amount of money. What if that doesn't plateau out? I mean, you know, people are living 80, 90, 100 now. What if we get to people living even longer than that and having even healthier lives? And we say, well, gee, I mean, now it's 25 or 30 percent of our GDP. But but boy, people have awfully good lives and we have really great drugs. And boy, isn't that so much better than what things were like in 2017? How how, where do we get to a plateau where we say, uh, we can't just spend all our money on health care, even if these drugs and stuff, they are fantastic. Well, uh, the problem is we don't know what that plateau is. So mm-hmm. let's take your thought example. Imagine it's 30 years from now and we're spending 25 percent of GDP or even 30 percent of our GDP and we're an amazingly healthier society. Who's to say that's wrong? I mean, we don't know. We know that we can't spend 50 percent or more, but we don't know where the right number is. What we do know is we have to get to a system where that number's chosen more rationally than it's chosen today. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with uh, John Gruber from MIT about the cost of healthcare innovation. So how do you deal with drugs that uh, extend people's lives by a month or a few months, which is which is good, but you know it's not a huge amount of life extension. I mean, if you're the person, if you're their family, you think, man, another month, I would give anything. But what if anything is a drug that's $100,000 or $200,000, but you don't have $100,000 or $200,000, so somebody, the American people, pay for that drug? Like, how do you decide what's okay and what's not, especially if the buyer cannot pay themselves and they don't have the money? There's an answer, which is there needs to be some well-functioning societal decision mechanism for making that. In England, they have something called, interestingly called NICE the National Institute for Comparative Effectiveness. And they decide that. They say, look, this drug is cost-effective enough that we should support it. It's not cost-effective enough we shouldn't. That would go in the U.S. by the name death panel. Okay? (laughs) Right, Um, right. It's not. It's a rational decision-making body of the type that 
rich countries ultimately need if they're going to afford health care. Now, we don't have anything like that right now. Obviously, I think back a few years to to those sort of outcries against death panels. Um, But if you don't have anybody saying, look, this drug costs $200,000 to extend your life a week, that, that doesn't seem reasonable. If nobody makes those rules which I guess is the situation we're in in this country. Yes. Um, what happens when you get these really innovative drugs that can extend people's lives by like a little bit of time? They get paid for and our health care costs go up. They and get right paid now, for by who? By insurers, by the government. I mean, we basically have a system where any drug that passes, that's effective, that the remember, the FDA doesn't say whether something's cost effective, just whether it's effective. Mm-hmm. It then gets paid for by insurers, by the government. And basically, that's a long-run problem. And does it matter how many people would be affected by the drug? So you've got people who have very acute illnesses, for example, um, but there's not very many of those people um, who really need a drug. But again, like the cost effectiveness of developing this drug and having teams of scientists work on it, you could say it's not that effective because it, it only helps a few people. Maybe we should work on things that help millions of people. Well, I mean, I think... The answer is there's no right answer. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't leave people with Duchenne's disease or other rare diseases out in the cold. Mm-hmm. If we can save their life, we should save their life and we should work on that. It's important to remember that those orphan drugs, those drugs sort of things right now don't add up to a whole bunch of dollars. So I think there's a lot of focus on those because they're sort of interesting examples, but they're not really where the dollars are. That's not to say they won't be in the future as we get more genetic testing and start to understand, hey, here's a Kara Miller drug. Here's a drug that cures exactly what's wrong with her. As we start to develop personalized drugs, this could start to become a real mm. issue. And, you know, once again, I think the only answer is have more rational framework where we say, look, if this is a drug which can improve Kara Miller's life for less than X, we should do it. If it's more than X, we should not. Mm. And that's where we need to get to. Okay, so if you were going to say a couple things, the best things that, that government could do to sort of control the cost of healthcare innovation, what would those things be? I think that there's a couple of things. Uh, One is, I think, setting up cost-effectiveness organizations, setting up a way to actually give information on cost-effectiveness and not necessarily saying non-cost-effective things can't be made, just that they won't be covered by insurance. And you're saying Britain has a version of this. Britain has a version of this. The second thing is we need to change the way doctors are reimbursed. So right now, a system where doctors and providers and hospitals are reimbursed based on how much they do to you, not how healthy they make you. We need to move towards what's called value-based reimbursement. Uh, is the second thing we need to do. The third thing we need to do is we need to recognize the fundamental problem in healthcare is that consumers aren't price sensitive to their healthcare decisions because they don't bear the cost. And why is that? It's largely because of what's called the tax subsidy employer-sponsored insurance. So if MIT comes to me and says, John, do you want $1,000 in wages? I take home about 600 bucks. If they come to me and say, John, do you want $1,000 in orthodontia benefits for your daughter? That's not taxed. So I take the whole $1,000. So my daughter has these cool braces that spin and change colors, and they're really neat. And every week she changes them. Because why not? It's free. It's insured. This system, this tax break, costs the American U.S. Treasury $250 billion every single year. And it leads people to buy excessively generous health insurance. Because why not? If they get wages, they'll be taxed. They get health insurance, they won't. We need to level the playing field. So the people make that decision on a level basis. They sh- their health insurance spending should be treated the same as their wages. So give me a sense of what you see happening in terms of how expensive medical advances are going to be um, and whether this is something that worries you, that you think about. I mean, I think any health economist has to be kept up at night thinking about this. 
I think that they're going to get more expensive. I think that when it comes to issues of healthcare innovation technology, we have to be humble and we have to be patient. Humble meaning we don't quite know what to do yet. We have some handle on the problems like I've been discussing, but you notice I've sort of evaded on things and been a little bit unclear on some things. It's because we don't really know exactly what to do. Patient in that we don't have to figure it out today or tomorrow. We have to figure it out over the next 25 years. Okay, we're not going to run out of money to pay for health care in 10 years or 20 years. We may run out in 50 years. So we've got time to do this, but we can't panic and do the wrong thing or ignore it till it's too late. John Goober is a professor of economics at MIT. He worked on developing both Romney Care in Massachusetts and Obamacare at the national level. John, thank you so much for coming in. Always a pleasure. And now, producer Caroline Lester takes a look at an industry that came of age during Obamacare and that may have a tough time adjusting to life without it. If you've got a smartphone, odds are you've taken part in the gig economy. You've gone on Etsy to order a custom piece of jewelry, you've used TaskRabbit to hire someone to get your groceries, or, like me, you've used Uber to catch a ride. I'm getting ready to uh, go back and start, uh, restart my grad school, so I'm in transition to uh, go back. That's an Uber driver living and working in Boston. He doesn't want his name used, so we'll call him Omar. Omar drives a Prius and is pretty great at weaving in and out of Boston's infamous traffic. His goal is to make some money before he starts business school. Enter Uber. For me, this is just a a temp gig. It's not something that I want to do full time or uh, for the long run, I guess. And I would absolutely not have done it without health insurance. If you're an independent worker, none of the gig economy companies, including Uber, will offer you health insurance. So if you want insurance, that's going to mean, for most people, going online and signing up for the Affordable Care Act, also known as the ACA or Obamacare. By the way, we don't know for sure how many Americans are working in the gig economy. The last measurement was back in 2007, and the government will start surveying again later this year. What we do know is that before the ACA, having a non-traditional job often meant you didn't have insurance. It was very difficult to get health insurance if you were a freelancer, a musician, uh, a consultant, um, before the Affordable Care Act. That's Melinda Bunton, chair at Vanderbilt Med School's Department of Health Policy. Back in the early 2000s, lots of people felt trapped by jobs they didn't like, sticking with them just for the health insurance. Economists even have a word for it. Job lock. At that time, people started to worry that our economy needed more flexibility in order to respond to the demands of the tech industry, the rising gig economy. It was actually an engine of growth for us, but people were worried that it could be brought to a halt if people got so worried that they couldn't get health insurance that they would stick to more traditional jobs. When the ACA was signed into law, tech companies got an opportunity. Now, no one had to stay with a traditional job just to keep their health insurance. And in the past seven years, we've seen an explosion in the gig economy. Avra Siegel is former director of public policy for Care.com, a service that pairs families with domestic workers. She also worked at the National Economic Council under President Obama. Recently, Care.com asked gig workers what benefit they needed most. It was very clear that the number one employment benefit that gig economy workers were looking for and needed most is health care. 
that always came out on top. So the repeal of the ACA might mean trouble for the gig economy. If gig economy companies offer their own insurance like other more traditional businesses, it'll be expensive. They'll have to raise the costs of their services or cut pay. Or they could have a fleet of uninsured workers. In that sense, the companies have a vested interest in ACA. That's obviously goal again. It's highly interesting because what you're finding are a set of unusual bedfellows for mandates on business. But the tech companies have been tight-lipped about the potential repeal. I reached out to a bunch of them, including Lyft, Uber, and TaskRabbit, and except for Care.com, most wouldn't talk. The Republicans' replacement for the ACA could change things drastically for gig economy workers. And that's especially true for those in their 50s and 60s who are likely to see costs skyrocket. Those who rely on Medicaid and young people whose income is low enough to get generous health care subsidies may also take a hit. But if you don't fall into any of those categories and you make less than 75 k odds are you'll save money. Avra Siegel from Care.com told me she's in between jobs right now, and I asked her what she's doing for insurance. I am lucky enough to be on my husband's health care plan. He is a federal employee and is lucky enough to have excellent health care. Omar, my Uber driver, isn't so lucky. For now, I pay a premium uh, and I have Obamacare. I guess I applied it through the state. But there's health insurance for students, which he'll have access to when he enrolls in graduate school. Until then, he'll keep driving for Uber and buying insurance through the ACA while he still can. For Innovation Hub, I'm Caroline Lester. We'll have more reporting on the link between the gig economy and the ACA at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help this week from Matt Toda. Our podcast is in iTunes and it's on SoundCloud, so you can hear it even when you're away from your radio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI. Public Radio International.